Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Just got back from Folk Alliance International, which is this crazy conference. This year, it happened in New Orleans, where basically 3,000 folk musicians and folk music industry types take over a hotel and have official showcases and private showcases from like four in the afternoon to three in the morning. It was wild. While I was there, I was able to capture a few different interviews, um, including the one that we're going to share today from Chris Matthews. Before we get into what we talk about, I want to remind you that it is wintertime and it is very cold. And what you really need is a basic folk beanie, which are for sale on my website. You can go to cindyhouse.net, check them out. My mom has knit them by hand and there is a basic folk label sewn onto each with utmost care, and she would like you to know that there's very fast turnaround. She'll mail that thing out as soon as you order it. Again, you can go to my website, cindyhouse.net, check out pictures, uh, and if you have any questions, you can just get in touch. You can also sign up for my email list there as well. Okay, on to our conversation with Chris Matthews, which we recorded it in her hotel room, Um, so there may be some hotel room noises involved, but Chris Matthews is the self-proclaimed, quote, poster child for intersectionality. And while she, like, says that with a smile, it's actually true. She's a black, lesbian, butch woman, formerly in an interracial marriage. She was raised in North Carolina. Her mother was a preacher, providing Chris with a rich backdrop of gospel music, She found music performance in the sixth grade, picking up the clarinet, and then immediately deciding that she wanted to be a high school band director, so she had to learn, like, a bunch of different instruments. Also in high school, she came out to her mother, which caused a lot of pain and friction between her and her mom, who were otherwise very close. In college, Chris discovered performing original music and songwriting, which caused her to pursue that as a path instead of being a high school band director. In our conversation, we talk about how she actually enjoys difficult conversations with people. Also, I ask her about the joyfulness you hear in her songs, even when they're hard topics. We touch upon her new EP, which is filled with very vulnerable and personal songs more than her previous work. And I enjoy hearing her talk about her relationship to her gender and how her clothing choices align with those feelings. And finally, we talk about the star of the show, her dog, Juice, which I think was maybe the most fun part of the interview. 
Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Chris Matthews. We're going to hear the title track to her new EP, which just came out last fall, called These Old Hands. And then we'll get to our conversation with Chris Matthews, recorded at Folk Alliance on Basic Folk. As I sat beneath a willow tree in Durham Park, I wondered how I'd ever pick back up where you left off. Yeah, another break of notch on this old love-worn belt. I know it's just day two, but it's the worst I've ever felt. Must be 10,000 miles between here and forgiveness. But I'm sick and I'm so tired, so I walk two miles and rest. I know you'll wake up one day wishing for these old hands. Don't come around this time next year looking for your, your second chance. Chris Matthews, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, thanks for having me. We are at the Sheraton Hotel uh, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very nice to be here. When you introduce yourself, you've said in the past, I'm the poster child for intersectionality, which you say with a smile, yeah. um, but it's actually true. Yeah. Um, can you explain that? Yeah, so I'm a black, lesbian, butch-identified woman, uh, who also uh, was formerly in an interracial marriage. Uh, so I check a lot of boxes, um, a lot of others in one person. And so uh, those others, a lot of a lot of times those things intersect. And uh, as a social justice songwriter, the notion of intersectionality is pretty important uh, to what I do. Um, and so I like to kind of, uh, on the one hand, let people know right away, like, this is it, this is me. Um, and we're going to be singing about some of these things because this is me. And it also is a a way to put other folks who might be kind of in the audience and being in a situation where maybe they've never seen somebody like them singing songs to people who aren't like them before Mm -hmm. to kind of put them at ease at the same time. So I always kind of try to lead with that and do it in a, in a soft little delicate way that always kind of, it's not very off-putting. It kind of makes everybody chuckle a little bit and get a kick out of it. Yeah. Um, you were raised in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Was it in the southeastern mm-hmm. part of North Carolina? Um, what was your hometown like? Uh, super tiny. Uh, we have about 3,000 people there, or did when I was growing up. It's a little bit bigger now. Uh, two stoplights. Very, very, very small town. Richlands, North Carolina, the town of perfect water. <laughs> very small. Yeah. Yeah. And I read that you would watch Dukes of Hazard with your yeah. grandfather. Yeah. When you were a kid, which yeah. um, you said, you know, that seems weird for a black lesbian to watch that particular show, but it's just kind of like what everyone you knew yeah. did back then. Yeah, we were Southern. I mean, that's kind of the thing with being Southern. It's like you you just are. It doesn't, you know, mom mom grew up watching Hee Haw, and I mm. grew up watching Dukes of Hazzard. You know, right. we just we're a Southern family. So. so it wasn't like you didn't feel any, like, pressure to conform around it? How do you mean? Like... You're like, well, this feels wrong to be watching this show. Well, when you're a kid, you aren't, you know, you aren't really apprised of uh, the significance of like the Confederate flag at like eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. You know, even even growing up in the South, you don't, you just aren't looking at it through that lens. At that time, you're literally just watching a show with some random cool people driving a super cool car through the backwoods that look a lot like the backwoods you just got done playing in. Right. Yeah. So speaking of your grandfather, he comes up in a few of your interviews. Can you talk about your relationship with him? Yeah. So my grandpa was uh, very much a father figure to me. I didn't grow up with my dad. I knew my dad and, you know, he was always kind of like in my life, but like my grandpa was definitely the man in my life. 
And so he and I were very close and I'm the only, the oldest grandchild. So we got to spend a lot of time together. And so I actually have one of his shirts in the closet now that I'm going to be wearing uh, on my official showcase. I always, always have grandpa with me in some way. He's, he definitely helped uh, raise me and uh, shape me into the person I am. So I have a lot of reverence for him. Nice. Yeah. Is he no longer alive? No, he okay. died the day after I graduated high school. Oh my God. So rough. Yeah, it was a little so tough. Sorry. <laughs> it was a little tough. Um, he was a fan of gospel and country music. And mm-hmm. you've said, I think the first time I ever saw a gospel song move my grandpa to tears definitely impressed upon me the power of music. Yeah. Um, what were the circumstances of that memory? Um, I mean, my, so I grew up in church, uh, in the AME church. My mom's a preacher. Um, grandpa was a deacon. His dad was a preacher. My uncle's a preacher. Like we are a churching family. And so, uh, you know, spent every Sunday of my t- entire childhood in, in Harrison Chapel AME church. And just remembering seeing him, uh, I think listening to, uh, rough side of the mountain and just being so moved. And he, he was such a stoic man and just such a strong man. And to, so, and not to say that the women were in there, honestly, I can only think of two times in my entire life I've actually ever seen my mother cry. Um, but to see grandpa just crying like that, it was just like, wow. And it was, it was just the music. He was just so moved from the song. And so that just really, really stuck with me and always has. Did that at all, or in what ways did that moment impact you in terms of like moving you towards music, either connecting to it more by listening to it or by playing it? I think just because of knowing the type of man that he was and seeing him um, be impacted so deeply from something that a song made him feel. When I am singing a song and and somebody comes up to me and tells me that they were crying, I think I definitely did something really good then because Mm. it, it, in my mind to reach somebody to a place that just opens them up like that. And then a lot of times to a stranger, um, you definitely are, are touching them on a, on a really deep level. So I think in that regard, it always feels like a, a, a big, huge compliment because it just, the fact of seeing somebody like grandpa cry because of a song, me making somebody else cry because of something that I've said or, or sang, um, and making them feel so moved in that way. It's just a huge, huge compliment. Nice. Your mom is a preacher. Mm-hmm. She's still a preacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were talking a little bit about the, you know, how you're a churching family. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the congregation she leads? Yeah. So actually she's like a free agent now. So for the AME, the AME church, church is an interesting, interesting thing. Um, they have politics just like everything else has politics. And she is definitely uh, a woman of her own mind. She does not play games she only knows how to be her sincerest self and so she doesn't do politics she never has done politics and so uh for her for the where she is in her life um her walk is still her walk and she still uh helps people and ministers to people um but she doesn't lead a congregation anymore she's finding much more meaning in in her life in that way right now what was your experience in in church and how did it shape your perspective of the world and how do you see it now so growing up in, in a, a super, super uh, Christian family and being a lesbian and knowing that I was gay since uh, fourth grade, mom always talks about this little journal she found in my closet when I was in fourth grade that said, I think I might be gay. And she's, she's freaked out and like ripped it out of the journal and threw it out. And I was like, why did you, why did you not talk to me about it? She's like, I didn't even think you knew what that word meant at that age. So, I mean, I, I've always known. 
Um, and so growing up in, in the church and knowing that about myself and then hearing, you know, the, the quintessential fire and brimstone sermons and things like that, um, it definitely made for a, a complicated teenage time, uh, for sure. And especially, uh, for mom, um, she and I, we always have been super, super close. And so when I was in high school, um, is when I came out, which was, I was outed, not really outed, but not coming out. I didn't get to come out. I kind of got outed, which is a crazy story, but it, it made things very, very strained between us. And so much of what that strain was rooted in was her feeling shame, worrying about what other people would think about her because of me. And so because of that, that made me have, um, you know, a much more complicated relationship with with the church uh, than I previously had because, you know, church has been such a huge part of my life. It was always a place that brought me pretty much great joy. I mean, the the music, singing in the choir and seeing, you know, just the fellowship um, that, that I grew up with in AME Church and having my family all around me, it was always such a beautiful part of my life. And so to then have it tainted in that way um, was, was hard. That, that was definitely an unpleasant chapter, uh, mm. for sure. But it's something that's not, not unfamiliar for almost every Southern gay in America mm. has had some form of that story. So anyway, you know, that part was a, was a little bit tough, but thankfully, you know, as I said, she, she is her own woman. She, she came around, she reminded herself what she always told me when I was a little kid, which is that kids don't ask to be here you bring them here. And when you bring them here, you have one job and that's to love them. Mm. And so she eventually got back to that part of herself and we've been solid ever since. So, and you know, it's actually been really, really nice for me. I've actually been able to, um, go, go to church actually a little bit. I think I've been to church more just in this first little window of 2020 than I did all of 2019. So it's, it's been nice. It's actually a kind of an interesting new resurgence. Yeah. Can you tell your coming out story? Uh, you, you don't have to, if you don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind. It's not, I don't mind. It's just kind of long. So my senior year of high school, this was back in the late nineties. So this was pre all of the stuff that kids have now to like find other people like them in community. This was back like on the cusp of AOL even being really like an active thing. We had dial up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I still remember that tone. And, um, so I, I had like my first internet girlfriend and, uh, it was this girl in Pennsylvania and she and I were talking all the time on, on the phone. And like, of course it's not smart to do that because this was back when long distance phone bills really stacked up quick. Mm. And so, uh, her mom got their phone bill and freaked out and was like, what is this? And called the number and got my mom and then through, you know, kind of like a back and forth between the two of them deduced that there was something untoward going on in their perception uh, between she and I. And so when I got home from school that day, mom was just like, that was it. It was like the night the lights went out in Georgia. It was crazy. She was just like, you know, what is this? Who is this girl to you? Like, why are you talking to her all the time? And I mean, I don't, I am not ever capable of lying to my mother. Like that's something mm. I can never do. So it's like, that was it. I was like, she's my girlfriend. And so then it was just horrible after that. So, um, let's see for a couple of months after that, um, I was almost not living at home. Like the entirety of my senior year of high school, I was living almost entirely at a friend's house. 
um, which was such a shock because, you know, as I said, mom and I were so close. Like, we have such a close relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so to then spend that much time not not with her at all, uh, it was really hard. And I'd really, I don't think that I would have even made it through my senior year of high school if it hadn't been for the mother of, of who I was staying with. Um, I always remind her of that. I'm pretty sure that's the only reason I'm actually still here today is because of her. Wow. But yeah. So, you know, it was a, it was definitely a, quite an eventful coming out, Mm. uh, for sure. Needless to say, that internet girlfriend and I really didn't have much a relationship after that day, (laughs) (laughs) but that's okay. Everything else worked out fine. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's such a traumatic story, but then it always is such a pleasant reminder of how far that she and I have both come, that my mom and I have come. Uh Um, which I think for so many people who are, who do have such a terrible relationship with their parents, um, because of being who they are, uh, being LGBTQ in any, any capacity. I do like to tell that story, even though it is a little triggering, just because it's such a good reminder that when people say to you, it does get better. It can feel so trite when you hear that, like you hear it on TV and you hear it in slogans and people are like, it gets better, it gets better. And like, it just seems like lip service, but it actually does. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it did for me. And I mean, it was definitely like what felt like the worst it could possibly be. And now the, the relationship that mom and I have is like night and day. So I actually like to tell tell that story because I like for people to, to find hope in that because sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like there's no way it's ever possibly going to get better. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's great. Um, what kind of non-church music was impacting you when you were younger? Oh, man. So much soul music. So much soul music. So... My dad is a huge, huge Otis Redding fan. Mom loves Aretha Franklin and, and all of that. So I would say, and honestly, it's really not that much of a surprise because so many of those soul singers also started in, in the church. Mm-hmm. So like Aretha has a huge, deep gospel music history. Her dad's mm-hmm. a preacher as well, you know, so it's not too much of a surprise. But I would say between gospel music and soul music, those were the, the two genres that I heard most growing up. Um, and at least until I was in uh, middle school. And then I was a pretty hardcore classical music nerd for quite a while. Right. Yeah. You started a yeah. uh, clarinet in the yeah. sixth grade yep. and you said you wanted to be a high school band director. Yeah. That was the only thing I wanted to be. Why I was, was that? I was pretty sure that was what I was going to do until the day it wasn't. Why did you want to be a high school band director? I loved it so much. I didn't, I didn't like middle school kids cause they just don't, I'm just going to be candid and I just want the parents out there to know. It's actually true. They just don't, they don't, they don't play well yet at that age. Some do. Some are completely naturally gifted and sound incredible. (laughs) But overall, statistically, middle school, it's when you're still just developing your skills. You know, you're just learning how to hold the notes. You're just learning to push the keys hard enough to make a sound come out. You're Mm -hmm. just learning to hold your mouth the right way. And so middle school, I didn't want to teach. I wanted to teach high school kids because that was when they had their skills relatively honed and could really just focus on the music and just focus on bringing out the emotion and the music and teaching them how to connect with the music and teaching them how to go even farther with their skills than they thought they already had. That's just such a, it's such an exciting thing. And so the challenge of that was something I was really, really just in love with. And actually still, if, if for some reason I don't get to write songs anymore, I may still end up as a band director someday at somewhere, <laughs> but yeah, that's all I wanted to do. You'd be it just such makes a great. Me so happy. Oh, so. you'd be so great at it. I mean, <laughs> you should see me conduct. <laughs> you're great at, at what you do now, Thank but you. you know, as somebody, I had like a really inspiring high school band director, yeah. and like so important, like it really leaves an impression on students. Definitely. Yeah. 
Um, as an aspiring high school band director, you learned a number of instruments. Yeah. Which instruments did you particularly connect with? Um, I mean, I love playing keys just because I, I got to play the keys a little bit in church when I was a kid. So I always like playing keys. Um, but other than that, I kind of liked playing the, the French horn just because it had such a unique timbre compared to so many of the other instruments. And was fun to hold it in that way. Like, I just felt so regal always holding French horn. <laughs> and um, I really loved playing uh, cello because it was such a hard instrument for me to learn. You play cello? I did, yeah. I haven't yeah. played it in a long time, so my chops are not nearly what they, sh- they should be, what they used to be. But, yeah, it was one of my favorites. Those were probably my favorite, too, to learn. That's so Band cool. directors, when you're going to a music education uh, program, you have to have at least a sixth grade proficiency on pretty much every instrument so that if a kid is like, hey, I don't know, am I doing this right? Like, you have to be able to help them with that. Wow. Not pedagogically, but, yeah, so those were probably my, my favorite, too, that weren't my main instruments. <laughs> You taught yourself guitar about like 10-ish years ago. Yeah, a little more than that. Can you talk about how you came to the guitar and what your relationship (laughs) is with it now? So now guitar is my primary instrument. Um, That's that's what I write probably 95% of my songs on. Um, And definitely what I am almost always touring with is guitar. Uh, But learning to play guitar was actually just one of those stories that starts with well, I was trying to impress a girl in college. (laughs) So my girlfriend at the time, um, this is when I was pursuing my music education degree. She was really, really wanting to learn how to play guitar. Like this was back when I think friends was cool. So like all the cool girls wanted to be like Phoebe with the guitar at the coffee shop, you know? So she's (laughs) like, I want to learn how to play guitar. So I'm like, all right. I mean, it can't be hard. Clarinet's got a million keys. The sync got six strings. It's got to be easy. <laughs> so I actually had to learn how to play guitar on her guitar so that I could then teach her how to play it, which is actually why I play it upside down and backwards because I had to learn on a right-handed guitar and right. I'm left-handed. You're left-handed. Yeah. So I like picked up her guitar, how it felt natural for me to hold it, which is how a left-handed person would hold it. And so then had to learn the chords in a backwards way so I could hear what they should sound like and then teach her how to play playing right-handed so it was kind of cool it actually was easy for teaching because it was kind of like a mirror image uh-huh. but I didn't I mean I wasn't going to learn it twice that's dumb I just learned it the one time so, was, <laughs> so now everybody's like are you playing that thing upside down so yeah it's just like just trying to impress a girl in college right that's so it. if you got a left-handed guitar I would have no clue what would, to do with right. it at all oh wow yeah I think left-handed guitarists are like very interesting like Kurt Cobain left-handed yeah. guitarist Courtney Barnett is left-handed Liva Cotton, Paul McCartney, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah, Jimi Hendrix. The, um, do you know that Australian band Middle Kids? No. Hannah Joy is the lead singer. She plays Nice. She plays it. I think she plays it like you. Cool. Like upside down, um, which I like get so confused when listening to <laughs> left-handed guitar players talk about because I don't know how to play guitar, but you just explained it to me perfectly. <laughs> Let's talk about that one night in college oh, yeah. where you played in a band singing and playing keys, like yeah. filling in. Yeah. So the band was called Half and Half because we were all band nerds. And those are the kind of band names you come up with when there are two black people and two white people, <laughs> two girls, two boys, two lesbians, two straight people. You're like, half and half. 
Just horrible. Oh Too God. many band nerds in one band. Just <laughs> so we had this one gig. And they, yeah, my roommate at the time, uh, she was also in the School of Music. She was a percussionist. And uh, she was like, we need somebody to fill in. Can you do it? Can you do it? And I'm like, of course, I can get you through the gig. No problem. And she says, you have to play the keys, which was easy. She's like, you know, it's fine. But you have to sing one song. And I'm like, all right. I mean, I sing all right. I can get you through it. And she's like, what song is it? She's like, it's Tell Me Something Good. And I'm like, oh, my God, that song's kind of hard, but all right. <laughs> so we play the gig at the Cottonwood Brewery. Which That's is the song. Actually like, no. Tell Me Something Good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're at the Cottonwood. And it's like that place isn't even there anymore. But it was the most incredible night. I just had the best time. I don't even know how to explain it. It was just like this feeling. And it was like the second I, I had that feeling, I wanted to have that feeling again. It was so cool and so much fun just performing like that. And like, that's never the way I had music, like playing in an orchestra, playing in in a symphony, symphony, it's a completely different sensation. You know, it's like, you're just a small part of the whole that's, that's doing this, that's presenting this piece of music. And it's almost like for me playing, it was almost like just more internally, like I was feeling different things with the music. I wasn't necessarily even concerned or that really connected with how the the pieces were connecting with the audience members per se. It's just such a different thing when you're playing in an ensemble like that. Um, but in that capacity, singing like directly to people and, and feeling that energy like instinctively, like immediately just given back, it was just so crazy to feel that. And so I went, I went home after that and like wrote my first song and uh, entered it in the campus talent show and like won 500 bucks, won first place in the thing, which is so cool. And I was like, oh man, maybe I'm all right at this. Maybe I should write some more songs. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So like the rest is history. I wrote that song and just wow. kept on writing songs and then eventually, you know, remembered, hey, the guitar is a lot easier to lug around than that gigantic keyboard. And so I picked the guitar back up and like actually started playing it and uh, started writing songs on it and have been doing so ever since. You did an excellent TED talk on difficult conversations. Yeah. Do you like having difficult conversations? I do, actually. Um, I think it's the preacher's kid in me. Um, You know, it's the way I was raised. You always want to try to come at anything from a place of love. Is much more effective um, to to come at somebody even in a hard time from a place of love, from a place of compassion. Um, that is the way I was raised, and so in the songs that I sing that are that are social justice centered, to me it's very important to still be very very candid, to still be very direct, to not be um, overly passive. Uh, especially with things that are super, super difficult, like Black Lives Matter issues, like immigration and things like that. You know, those are important things that dramatically impact people's lives. It's not ever something that I want to like coddle somebody about. Um, But there's a way to have that conversation with someone and be direct and be candid, but still be coming at it from a place of love. I don't think people's ears work nearly as well uh, when you are not coming at it from a, a place of love, they just get so defensive right away and just kind of shut down. And so I think if at the end of at the end of the day, if the thing that you are actually trying to do is reach somebody, then you should reach them in the best possible way that you can, which is almost always from a place of love. Hmm. How do you overcome that fear of rejection 
when you're engaging somebody who yeah. thinks differently. I think that's just uh, the sheer gift of, again, being an Aries because we just always <laughs> think everything's going to work out for us. It's really a blessing and a curse. And, um, you know, I just don't think about it like that. I, I try to just do a good job. And I feel like if I'm doing a really good job and I'm at my best that day, then it's, it's going to be all right. It's just, it tends to be the case. And so I just trust in that and just go right and go for it. I don't, I don't let the worry get in my way, especially because I do play folk music. And so, uh, folk music audiences are in, in this country, in the places that I play predominantly white. I'm singing about things like Black Lives Matter. I'm singing about things like immigration. And so that could be intimidating. And so if I were to let the fear of that stop me from singing the songs that are in my heart to sing, I wouldn't be doing my job. You carry on some of these conversations from stage through your songs. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've said that there's nothing like having a conversation with a group of strangers, like you're performing one of these songs where they kind of like get it at the end. Mm -hmm. And then there's this like sigh after the song is over, you know, that you're like, oh, I got him. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that moment? Yeah, it's uh, it is is actually palpable. the The most poignant. I have two of them that I I've experienced that most frequently with. Um, one is about the Confederate flag, and one is about the Me Too movement. And at the end of both of those songs, you can. It's so quiet, and then it's almost like you know when you get a really good hug that you need so bad, and you feel the person's shoulders drop when they're in your embrace. Mm. That's the feeling of that sigh. The room like collectively. Like the person who needs they're the just hug. Like, they're just like, oh. Yeah. They just okay. relax so much. Like you can feel the tension just leave them immediately mm. because they feel so comforted or so seen. Um, it's the same sensation as that. It's like the collective room just lets their shoulder drop. Like they just got it. Like, oh my gosh. And it's just the most palpable thing. It's it's one of my favorite moments to experience when I'm singing songs for people because that means that the message that I was trying to send to them they got it loud and clear and there is no clearer representation of it than that little sigh that the whole room does Mm. it's the most incredible thing there is an energy that people radiate and you say that you can feel it Mm -hmm. when you like step onto the stage and that's the reason why you don't create a set list yeah which makes sense but I want to talk about this like energy how can you feel it? What does it feel like? Was this something you were always able to do? Did you have to cultivate it? It's, you know, I think that sometimes if you are a person that is a really empathetic person, um, if you are somebody who tries to connect very deeply with people, um, you always are open. You're much more open. You don't have yourself closed off. You don't have those walls up that a lot of times we as humans do. Sometimes it's just self-preservation. We don't mean to put them up. It just keeps us safer to have them sometimes. Mm -hmm. But if you are generally, I think, more empathetic, I think it is impossible not to feel that transference, to feel that connection with somebody else. And so when you have that many different types of energy in one space and you are yourself very open hearted and feeling, you know, very open and trying to be very open, that stuff will reach you. And so it it just, I don't know, it's like hard to explain. You, you sit on the stage and you think, okay, I'm going to try to write a set list because somebody's going to want me to write a set list. I'm going to do my best to stick with it. And then this thing just comes out of nowhere and you just feel it and you're like, Somebody needs to hear this song right now. And so you just sing a completely different song. And every single time I trust that 
somebody comes up to me at the end of the night and it's just like, what was that song? I needed to hear that so badly. Thank you for that. Mm. And it's, it's beautiful. I think that's why, even though it's hard to sometimes sing the kind of music that I do sing, um, and sing those kinds of songs, the, the validation of knowing that you are every single time helping somebody just keep doing it, Mm. you know, no matter what, no matter how difficult it is. You're a black lesbian. Truly. Who was married to another woman. Yeah. Your style and your presentation is like pretty genderqueer, but you're a woman and identify as one. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you relate to your gender? And also, how do you use your style, your fashion to express those feelings? Yeah. So for me, I am very, very, very comfortable in my feminine energy, like incredibly comfortable in being a woman. So, so stoked to be a woman, uh, over the moon to be a black woman at that. And so for me, I think the difference between me as a butch identified lesbian versus uh, a lot of of folks who are uh, genderqueer or identify just exclusively as just like gender nonconforming or even some folks who identify as trans, you know, that's the difference. I am very comfortable in my womanness. I just also look super handsome in a bow tie, you know? And so I just, I like that. I like that dichotomy of those two things. That's how I've always felt more comfortable. Even when I was a little kid, I had like these cool He-Man, like Velcro strap shoes that were like my favorite shoes in the world to wear. And I mean, I just always have like style wise, I like the clothes that I like to wear. Like me wearing the clothes that I like to wear and liking to you know, when I when they're like, get dressed up for your show, it never, ever crosses my mind to wear anything but a collar shirt, a bow tie, or suspenders, and some nice slacks, and some stellar shoes. That's it. It never crosses my mind to wear anything other than something like that, because that's what I feel comfortable in. That's what I feel confident in. But I also am incredibly confident and secure in the fact that I'm a woman and love every aspect of being a woman. Mm. And I think the difference is people being kind of limited into what woman is and feeling like, well, woman can only mean you like dresses or woman can only mean you like pink or this or that or Mm -hmm. this or that. When it's so much more than that, being a woman, I mean, I'm just as much of a woman in that bow tie as I am, you know, next to the woman who's doing anything else, like whatever boxes she has to check to make her quote unquote a woman. Chances are I'm checking all those same boxes. (laughs) I'm just doing it in a pretty stylish suit and bow tie. So, you know, that's the difference for me. Um, I, I have a lot of love and respect for the, the other aspects of, of my community, of my LGBTQ community. Um, but I am always very, very vocal about the fact that I, I identify as lesbian. I'm very proud of being a woman. I'm very happy being a woman. I just am super butch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, who are your style icons? Oh, man. Oof, that's a hard question. Gosh, are you got one? Man, who are my style icons? I don't know. Well, I mean, I have to say my buddy is my buddy Ra is like super stylish. Um, Heather May is another singer songwriter. Uh, her wife Ra um, is so dapper all the time. Jenny Urban is like somebody else who's super dapper. Uh, Jenny does the dapper and urban bow ties, which I wear a lot of their bow ties. And uh, Chris Perica, singer songwriter, super stylish, always looking so super sharp and cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are the first three that come to mind, I guess. Michigan Women's Festival. Yeah. 
you played a bunch of times there. Mm-hmm. I found this pretty amazing quote from you about it. You said, the most important thing I took from the five years I got to be on that land was this. When women gather unburdened by the shackles of societal norms and expectations, we are powerful beyond measure. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So Michigan Women's Music Festival um, was a week-long festival that took place outside of Hart, Michigan, where every single aspect of that festival was done by women. The land, when it wasn't festival time, was just this big, huge piece of forest. During festival time, it was like an entire village just sprung up in the woods. There were huge tents everywhere with, like, you know, medical care facility capabilities. There were uh, stages. There were three different stages in the middle of the woods. There were all of these different things that were just literally built from the ground up by women. All of the cooking that was done um, on a busy year, like that festival would have more than 5,000 people there. All of the cooking that was done was done in community by women's hands. Like every single aspect of it was done by women. And it was just something that I don't think most people in America, especially who are born as girls and raised as girls ever get to see or experience we're always conditioned to think that certain things are things that boys do. Certain things are things that only guys can do or only men can do. And that, you know, girls do these things, you know? And even when even when we're raised by super strong, amazing women, it's different thinking that women are fearless and can do anything and then physically seeing it all be done by women. Just, it's, it was the, I remember the first year I went, the, the the day that we had to leave the land, it was such a shock to even see a guy because I just hadn't even seen one for like a week anywhere. And it was just like, oh my God, they do still exist. They're still here. And it was just like this, this crazy sensation because you just don't experience the world that way, you know? And so it was just so amazingly eye-opening to see the fierceness that women were and I mean there were so many different types women from all backgrounds women from all ages indigenous women women of color just so many amazing types of women women shooting bows and arrows from like the stage all the way out to the middle of a field and just like hitting a bullseye with fire it was crazy wow just amazing it's like in my little kid wildest dreams I could have never imagined anything even remotely like that and to be able to experience it for five summers and just see and be reminded and be reminded and be reminded that women are amazing and can literally do anything was completely life-changing completely Mm. powerful I wish every person in the world who identifies as a woman could have experienced that How do you feel about the comparison of musicians through things like Spotify, all music, etc., that just like places a musician in the category of other musicians that look like them? Yeah. You know, there are very few female musicians that you can like check related artists on that have like men also listed under them. So Mm -hmm. like when I checked your related artists in one place... It was like relating you to Tracy Chapman, Ruthie Foster, Toshi Reagan, which like you probably have listened to other musicians and maybe have taken influence from other musicians. So how does that hit you? You know, it's 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 one of those things where like you have to make your peace with things sometimes being that trite um, or not. You know, it's like every day somebody comes up to me. This happened downstairs here today. It's just like. You know who you remind me of? 
And if I could get a dollar for every time I had to feign surprise of the next line being Tracy Chapman, I would be so rich right now. Like, just so (laughs) rich. And I have an Oscar or two just on my shelf. Um, You know, it's just the way humans work sometimes. We're sometimes so desperately in need of the familiar. Like, we just default to that so quickly. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, this reminds me of this. And I like this. Okay, I like you. It's like this weird thing it's humans like the, do. It's like know? how we make sense of the world. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's a weird thing. It is. It's a very yeah. weird thing. And I try not to let it, let it bug me too much because ultimately it is a very big compliment. She's an amazing songwriter. Like the fact that they think I remind them of her, you know, for, for the songs that I sing and the way that I tell stories, it's a huge compliment. But yeah, ultimately it'd be great if in maybe a couple more years they could be like, oh man, is that Chris Matthews? And like, I never have to hear, do you know who you remind me of again? That would be amazing. <laughs> but you know, I understand it. And so I just try to try to be patient and and just give give grace. <laughs> That's totally. it. All right. So you have a joyful like bounce in your songs. You know, right. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Like despite okay. difficult subjects, like your delivery is like easy and hopeful. Yeah. Where does that come from? That's all mom. That's all mom right there. I mean, she, with the exception of my senior year in high school, in a couple of years of college right after coming out. I mean, honestly, that woman, I don't know that there is anybody else who worked so hard to instill so much love in their child so consistently. Um, and I think for her, you know, she actually had a very complicated relationship with my grandpa, which is always so interesting because she says she's always just so happy that he was always so good to me and loved me so much and was so good to me, but they had a very complicated relationship. He was kind of tough on her uh, sometimes. And so for her, she always wanted to make sure that there was never a single day in my life as her child that I ever questioned whether or not she loved me or if I was being given, you know, adequate amounts of love by everybody, by her, by my grandparents, by my aunts and uncles, everybody. And so she did. She worked tirelessly and still works tirelessly to make sure that she is constantly filling me up with love. And so when I have that much love coming at me, I have to bounce that back out into the world. And so I think that's why the the songs I sing, even the even the hard ones, I do try so hard to just make sure that I am putting that back out there. Um, it's because that's what she gives me and has always given me, you know? And so I try to put that back out into the world. It seems like how that's supposed to work. Mm, love that. Yeah. Your new album came out in October on mm-hmm. National Coming Out Day, yeah. and you said this album is a sort of coming out of sorts for me. You've been an out lesbian since you were 18, but on this album is one of the few times in my life I've actually felt vulnerable. Yeah. What was that like for you to be so vulnerable in your Super music? Super scary. Super yeah. scary. I still only perform like two or three of the songs. They're still, like Some of them are just so hard to sing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very different. Um, I went through a a divorce I'm actually still in the process of going through that divorce actually. Um, so that's to have had such a public, uh, relationship, like the first six or so, um, of my albums are all very centered around, um, my beautiful relationship with my wife. Um, and so to then not have that and to then transition into something other than that was very hard. Mm. Um, and I am generally relatively relatively private uh, with certain aspects of my life and so to then have the the entire album just be about that very 
difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic. It's easier for me to sing songs about, um, you know, hard things I've experienced as, as, uh, being black or as being lesbian or, or hard things that women experience. It's easier to sing those difficult things than to sing about a marriage falling apart, mm -hmm. you know? And so that was actually unexpectedly difficult. Um, but you know, somebody told me not to, to refer to that as a breakup album because the songs are so beautiful. Um, and so it's a disservice to, to call it a breakup album. And so I guess in that respect is why I felt like it was still okay to, to just put, I like to call it my titanium wall to just put the titanium wall down and just, you know, put those songs out into the universe because other people are going through that. Other people are experiencing those kinds of things. Um, and certainly not, as many uh, songs out there, albums out there about uh, LGBTQ couples going through that. So mm -hmm. in that respect, it felt kind of selfish really to not just go ahead and move forward with the project anyway. Um, and so I did. Wow. So, All right, let's talk about someone who has been with you for 12 years. Yes, ride or die. It's my ride or die. It's Juice. I Juice the it. dog. Juice the dog. It's the best dog in the world. I don't, so great. I don't know what to ask you about Juice. I'm just going to ramble on. I'm going to go into full-on lesbian mode. So I've Do had it. my dog since she was eight weeks old. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a rescue. I've had her literally since she was eight weeks old. Um, I got her in Boone, North Carolina. And uh, it was actually a crazy... So I've, I'm a staunch believer in serendipity. Like, such a staunch believer in serendipity. So my girlfriend at the time and I, we were being very cliche. We wanted to get a dog for Valentine's Day. And so we went to the shelter. There was this adorable litter of puppies there. She loved one of the puppies and I loved another one of the puppies. We did not love the same puppy. And mm -hmm. so I said, in my sage wisdom, okay, you think about the one that you love and want. I'm going to think about the other one and we're going to go home tonight and we're going to sleep on it. And then we're going to come back tomorrow we're going to make a decision. We come back the next day and there is a dog there that was not there the day before. And it is little juice mm -hmm. and it is love at first sight. And that was the end of it. <laughs> I picked up juice and was like, this is our dog. And there was no even discussion at all. Like we both loved her right away. And, uh, it was so crazy because the person, the reason that juice wasn't there the day before was because somebody had actually gotten her and taken her home they took her to the vet and the vet says she was going to be like a 40 or 80 pound dog, like some crazy big amount. Like they were like, it's going to be a big dog. And the girl that had taken her home had an apartment and was like, I can't have a dog that big. My landlord is going to kill me. So she brought the dog back and juice is only about 35 pounds. She's a little dog. I can just pick up on my hip. So it was just like a perfect mistake because mm. it worked out so well for me. I mean, I've had her for, for 12 years. She'll be 13 her next birthday. And, uh, she is, been with me through every single hard thing I have had to go through mm. in the past decade plus. And, uh, there's a, I have a song that I wrote about her called by my side. And it is, it's so true. It's just like, I wish I could be more like her. Cause she really does do such a good job. She's so full of love. She loves everybody. She's like mm. the worst possible attack dog ever. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just a good reminder, like, especially when so much hard stuff is happening to just see her just be so full of love just constantly. It's like, oh man, all right, I gotta try harder. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She's the best. She's such a great dog. Good teacher. Yeah, yeah. All right, Chris, let's do the lightning round. Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm so scared. I'm freaking out. All right. <sighs> okay. I got this. I got this. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Gray Sky Morning, Vertical Horizon. 
Woo. Uh, Batman or Superman? Definitely Batman. Um, do you read music or play by ear? Both. What's your karaoke song? Ooh. We're gonna joke me so hard for this. Give me one reason about Tracy Chapman. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot the believe truth comes out. I cannot the believe truth this. Comes oh out. my god. Um, okay, first album you bought with your own money? Melissa Etheridge, yes, I am. Oh my god, you're a lesbian. So, so deep, Les. <laughs> deep, Les is so deep. It is so deep. First concert, Ani DeFranco. <laughs> oh, no, I was like, no, no, I'm older than that. My first concert, oh my God, the first concert I remember going to is by this group called The Jets. I don't know if anybody in America even knows that band, but they were amazing. I was like nine years old and was having the time of my life. Wow. It was incredible. Dream collaboration. Oh my God, Ruthie Foster, hands down. That'd be good. That'd be a good one. Uh, morning person or night owl? Both. Flying or invisibility? Ooh, man, that's a great one. Oh, man. I'm going to say flying. Sometimes that would come in handy for gigs. I'm going to say flying. <laughs> uh, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, man. Monet's Gardens. Where's that at? Paris. Paris. Yeah. All right. Lindsay's probably laughing at me right now. <laughs> no, she's not. Okay. Chris Matthews, you did it. Yay! Yay! Uh, we did it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Chris Matthews, the new EP, These Old Hands, is out now. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey with assistance from Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm your host, Cindy House. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon podcast group. Please go check out the website, cindyhouse.net, for show notes on this and all other episodes of Basic Folk. This was the 55th episode of the podcast, so there are a bunch to listen to if you need to go back and check them out. They're all up there, and this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe review, share it with your friends. Much appreciation to you. Again, cindyhouse.net. You can also get yourself a basic folk beanie there and sign up for the mailing list. And I will talk to you next week. Okay, bye. Bye.